1: 17.2 of The Big Red Van. Who is it? The middle segment of the show where the guys bring in a variety of guests from all over the country. Tonight they take a trip to beautiful Napa Valley to visit wine broker and longtime friend Mr. Brad Everett. Now let's hear what the guys had to talk about. This is The Big Red Van. everybody here we go we're at the middle segment guest time who is it with a friend of mine that i haven't had the opportunity to spend much face-to-face time with in a long time but uh we reconnected recently over the power of the interweb and we're happy to bring on a wine broker wine connoisseur really of all all different things you're going to be able to be our resident wine expert brad but a really really good friend of mine living in the silicon valley out in california mr brad everett so thank you brad
2: Thanks
1: for having me. Yeah, man, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. You a fan of the, the BRV that you've been able to consume so far?
2: I mean, technically, I'm two parts of BRV because I'm big and red. So <laughs> it's fitting. Brad, I, I have to say this. So,
1: of course, we get to see who plays our show if you have yeah. a SoundCloud file. You, um, you take the highest rank so far of number of episodes played in one
2: week. So, congratulations. <laughs> that's sad at the same time, isn't it? No, I mean, <laughs> no, man. I don't see it that way. Well, I the thing is, man, I I drive all the time, same. so
1: podcasts are perfect in the car.
2: No, Absolutely, they, they su- that's why I'm sucked in
1: commuting to work. It's the greatest thing for sure, man. That's kind of really how the idea was born. I've had over an hour commute to work for a good portion of the last seven years, so mm-hmm. it's been one of those things that kind of. Eh, I think it'd be cool to have a podcast. So yeah. yeah. Yeah, it kind of works out So you're getting, you're fitting right into our, our Who Is It segment the, the Q&A style where we bring on interesting people That of all walks of life from all over the country That have stories to tell You happen to have stories about the industry and wine And uh, a mix of childhood stories that involve me So that's it's going to be a fun dynamic of that So we're going to hit you with some press conference style And I'm going to let Hayden start it off As a beer brewer myself I got into beer brewing because I like to do things and make things that I can enjoy, like that I made myself. You're into Mm -hmm. wine. Have you ever tried making wine?
2: Man, I never have. So the thing is, is like I've always just been solely on the sales side of the industry versus like, you know, what we would say is supplier side. And there are these little kits and stuff you can get where you can go buy bulk juice or you can buy almost finished juice and design the packaging Or I mean, really, because I live close to wine country where grapes are grown, I could probably go and just buy enough to fill a barrel and custom—they call it custom crushing—and do that at a facility and have my own wine. But a barrel of wine is like fifty-six cases, so
0: (laughs) I haven't really hit that bullet
2: (laughs) because it's hard to micro batch it. You know, there's—they don't really have like the Mister Wine kit yet, where you just do it on like your counter in a carboy. Although I guess you probably could, but no, I haven't.
1: A friend of mine has done some of that and it takes the only thing that's the big difference is it takes so much longer with wine. Like making yeah, beer takes a month. And then
2: aging. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like I mean, he made a batch of mead once which of course, you know, that's a little different but I mean it took like 6 months to to get to where you could even drink it just so that it wasn't so it tasted right.
2: Yeah, so my uncle lives in Paso Robles, which is a wine region in Central Coast, California. I live in San Jose, so it takes me about two and a half hours to go down there. Well, <clears throat> his backyard has, I don't know, three feet or 75% of his backyard is like 75% of an uh, acre. He's got about 12 rows of vines, grows Cabernet and Zinfedil. So I go there every once in a while for his harvest. We call it a nano harvest because it really only takes about half a day to do it, but so I've done that part of it, like get the wine ready for fermentation. But then I walk away from it, come back a year later, and drink it after <laughs> all the
1: real work. Right. Well, that's you know that's the ultimate reward right there, is to come back mm-hmm. and get to drink it. Yeah, I mean, speaking of that, if you had to try to convince one person that hasn't either ever tried wine or has tried it or whatever, but why wine, Brad?
2: You know that's kind of interesting. I'll try to make this not long-winded, but. I had no interest in wine when I was in college. Like When Wade was living in Lawrence at the same time I was, we would go over to Buddy's house, and they would be playing Beard Eye with Franzia White Zinn. Beard oh. Eye, there's a Nebraska shout-out. Yeah, Beard and Eye. I what, couldn't what? even drink the stuff. I'm okay. like, Wade, I don't – I remember Wade – like none of us were drinking wine. We were like, oh, man, that stuff's nasty. What?
1: Hang and, on, um, hang on, Brad. Hang on, hang on. I, I have to just say you just brought up beer Eye. You better damn believe it. Okay. A kid that is nineteen years old comes up to me and asks me, "Have you ever played beer die?" And I was like, <laughs> "Excuse me, like, how do you know what beer die?" I can is? party with that kid. I was like, I jaw hit the floor. I was like, "How <laughs> and do you?" He said you know? beer
2: die and not biz, right?
1: Correct. And he explained to me the rules of how they play, identical Perfect. to how we've played it. Perfect. I was just floored. Like, how do you know how to play this game? Did you read this on the internet? Where did you find this? But I was dumbfounded. You
2: just got to watch out for the ceiling fan above yeah. the beard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: yeah. Sorry, Brad. Continue. Yeah,
2: please, I didn't mean to interrupt, but beard. I oh, yeah, no worries. But, but it's funny. So, like, I had no interest in wine. Like, I figured it was something adults drank, and I did not consider myself one at the time. <laughs> and uh, I had a buddy from high school that Wade also knows who worked at uh, Cork & Barrel, which was kind of like – I mean, it was really a one-stop shop liquor store, but it also had, like, the largest selection of wines. So if you were going to try to buy a good wine, you'd probably be going there. And, like, really in college, the liquor store job was, like, the coolest job. I mean, it did not pay well, but it was just, like, like a cool gig. You got to buy booze at cost. And in a college town, you'd run into a lot of people there and maybe be able to sell you them run into, when no one else could. You so, run into
1: everyone. Dude, I remember you being able to network pretty well with the sorority girls working at that job.
2: Oh, yeah. yeah. I, it definitely had some perks because, I mean, it only paid $6 an hour, so you needed perks. So anyways, yeah, like I started working at the liquor store. Whoa,
1: whoa, 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 whoa. Back up. Hang on. That that can't be – Yeah, that has to be highlighted. $6 highlight. an hour. $6 an hour. You, you hearing yeah, that, Yeah, when kids? I got started. You entitled started, $10 an hour Burger King <laughs> <laughs> pieces of shit. $6 an hour. So I'm trying to think of what year that would be. I think I
2: started working there and uh,
1: – it's so two thousand two, two thousand three, man. No, 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 no two thousand
2: one. It has to be two thousand three because I was born in eighty two, right? So I had to be twenty one to work there. Yeah, but 20, I was twenty one when I got the job. Also, so two thousand three is
1: when minimum wage changed. Yeah. So I had. To well, be. this was also in Kansas, so
2: not I mean, the federal. Well, minimum
1: wage.
2: So when I started, I was making six twenty five an hour. Hmm. So it was kind of a joke, but, anyways, <laughs> it was a cool gig, right? And Kansas liquor stores closed at 11, so, like, you could work your night and still go to the bars afterwards. So, anyways, I was working there. I worked there for about a year and a half while I still didn't really care at all about wine. But, like, I was trying to learn something about it because at a store like that, you know, customer service, you wanted to be able to at least, you know, direct people to the things they were looking for. So, like, I was kind of, like, indirectly trying to just pick up some information, but I still did not want to drink wine. And it's funny because I had a buddy – who was like, hey, man, you know, there's this industry wine tasting where one of our vendors or suppliers was putting something together for a staff training of sorts. And they were like, come to this wine tasting. And I was like, man, I'm not going to a wine tasting. <laughs> like, no, thank you. It's a and Catalina the like, wine no. mixer. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And these were actually going to be, you know, somewhat real wines. But he was like, "No, man, you really, you really should come. I mean, you work here, like, you should come." And I was like, "Yeah, I'm not coming." And he was like, "Well, no, you're going to come, but you know, we could talk about that later." So it's funny because he just pulled up to my house the day of the tasting and knocked on my door. It was like, "Come on, man, we're going to the tasting." I was like, "Oh God, come on, okay. man, so meant, to, I, meant to be." <laughs> yeah, he was like, "Get in the car." So, anyways, they took me to tasting, and it was like a restaurant in between their lunch and dinner service. They'd like pretty much cleared it out for us, and there wasn't even that many wines. I think it was like eight wines, and there was like four red, four white, and the guy was kind of teaching us about them. But one of the wines was like uh, it was Rosemont, and it was like their Gewürztraminer Riesling blend, so they called it a Traminer. So I tried that, and like it's kind of sweet, right? And mm. so I was like, well, sh- I can drink that. You know, so I started drinking it and, like, I got my first wine buzz, which, as far as, like, drinking buzzes go, wine's definitely the most energetic, uplifting. I agree with that. So, anyway, so I was like, that's cool, but that didn't, like, turn me into a wine drinker. Um, But I realized, like, okay, there's wines I can drink. Like, so if it's, you know, somewhat sweet or whatever, I can drink it, like Moscato's, Riesling's, that wine in particular. And so I got myself, like, somewhat accustomed to drinking things like that. And then... I got asked to go to or recruited to go to a couple more of these like wine tastings and these were much bigger ones now where there's like 3 or 400 different wines to try. And so I went to a couple of those and I was like, "Okay, this is pretty cool." And I was like kind of kind of getting into red wines and expanding my palate or my horizon on what uh-huh. I you know could drink because I think anything that is ethanol based or you know has liquor in it is an acquired taste. Nobody really likes beer when they first have it. I don't really think anybody likes liquor the first time they had it, and I think it's the same with wine. So you really have to acquire it. And so I think that's I a fair—that's like a fair
1: point for everyone except for Russians and vodka. So <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, really, if you think about it, you know, we're drinking ethanol. Like your body's really not meant for that. Correct. You know what I mean? So like, it's definitely something that's going to be acquired. Um, and then so I hang on, hang on, moment. hang on.
1: Let me. Yeah. You said that you were have been recruited to go to these wine tastings. So you, so you mean. You've had somebody come up to you and say, hey, Brad, come on, let's go drink some wine.
2: <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Like, yeah, That's awesome, really dude. Let's really go. Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I was like, okay, all right.
1: You're like, <laughs> right, I like, I like it. I like the buzz. So, I can dance, you know? Cool. It doesn't knock me out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yeah, so anyways, um, and then I have what, like, I guess I call my aha moment. And most people in the wine industry that, like, have made this their career, we can all harken back to, like, a specific moment that we like really caught the passion for what we do, or you know, being in the wine industry or having passion for wine. And usually it boils down to like a certain bottle. And for me, I was playing poker with like the buddies' poker night. And I had a friend that worked at the liquor store, his name was Tanner, and he was four or five years older than me. And he was a really good poker player, and he'd come over for a poker night, and he actually, you know, did understand wine. So he brought over a bottle of Altamura, I believe it was like two thousand Altamura, and then he brought over a bottle of two thousand Randy Duncan. And these are bottles of wine. I mean, they're like 100 hundred dollar bottles of wine, pretty much. Anyways, he opens it up, and like at that point in time, you would never, I would never even think about paying hundred dollars for a bottle of wine yeah, I just couldn't understand the point. That. Yeah, and, no, and I couldn't either. And anyway, so and it's funny too because this is like the heat of the summer, and my apartment's like not necessarily cool. So it's like a hard time to be drinking or, you know, really hot to be drinking big, big reds. Anyways, he opens this bottle up, pours me a glass, and literally I take one, one big sip of it, and I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I see why this is $100. Like, this <laughs> is so complex. Like, this is like its own experience. It's like when you have one of those, like, expensive meals that you're like, oh, my God, like the chef or whatever the ingredients. Well, this was in a bottle of wine. And it was great because I knew it could be replicated. I knew I could just go buy that bottle again. Mm. So that's what's kind of unique. I mean, obviously within a certain vintage, but that kind of was the light bulb, right? So once that happened, I took the opportunity to go to every big tasting I could. And the people that do the job I currently do, they have big portfolio tastings where all their suppliers from all over the world fly in and they let all their customers come and, you know, try their products. And like I said, these will be tastings with 500 people and there'll be over 500 different wines to try. And you just go around and you just sample and taste all these things. And a lot of the wines are expensive. So that was it's, really how I got the education.
1: The only thing that I just – I I find it so hard to spit it out. I know you get to taste a lot and you'd be hammered if you didn't spit it out. But it just makes me so sad that you spit out those expensive wines. Yeah, you have to spit it out. So what's the process of like clearing your palate, like your taste off your palate so you can actually taste the next one? Is there an actual process <gasps> to that?
2: I mean, a little bit, right? So, like, a lot of times if I'm going into one of these huge tastings, like, I like to start with white and then move to red because you get what we call palate fatigue. And if you're drinking, like, for example, a lot of Italian Barolos, which is very tannic, and the word tannic means, like, really dry, almost abrasive in a way as far as, like, it drying your mouth out. Right. Those wines will... Give you palate fatigue faster than anything, and white wines generally won't. So if you're going to a huge tasting like that, you try to say like, "Hey, I'm going to hit these white wines, and then I'm going to end with the red wines." Um, But as far as like the spitting process, to your point, Hayden, most people in the beginning of their careers going to these things, they don't spit and they get hammered, and like a lot of the people that have been in this career for like ten and twenty years are just rolling their eyes, like "Get these people out of here." But like after you've done that a few times, like you realize. If, especially if you want to stay in the industry, like you can't be that guy.
1: Oh, I know. I wasn't meaning it like that. I was just more so meaning like tasting these expensive wines that's supposed to be enjoyed, and then just spitting it out. And five hundred other people are doing the exact same thing, and all right. this all this wonderful wine that they're they're trying to share just gets ultimately spit into a bucket. I just, it's just, uh, you know, I get it. It's just. It makes me sad. Yeah, it's your
2: free samples. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> These spit buckets sometimes are worth $1,000 if you think about <laughs> That's
1: it. That's what I mean. Like, it just is sad. That's crazy. Well, no,
2: even today, right? So, like, today I was around going to restaurants, showing wines, and I mean, spitting out bottles that are 100 bucks a piece. Just, you know, we don't even think about it because obviously we're in the industry. But I, I mean, I totally get what you're saying because I taste with people sometimes, like, let's say I'm chasing with the wine bar at a restaurant, and like, he's like, hey, we'll bring the chef in. And, like, you know, a lot of times, like, the chef depending on the restaurant or how long they've been a chef, they won't dump anything. And I don't care. But it's just kind of funny because obviously they don't get to taste very often. And they're like, oh no, man, that's uh, six hundred dollars a case, I'm gonna spit that out. I'm like, all right. <laughs> I wouldn't.
1: I'd be that guy for sure. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So Brad, i you you're listening to the B R V and you're getting caught up on it. I definitely want to ask you a question and you're gonna I'm sure this is going to segue into something else. What's the fa- your favorite concert that you've ever been to?
2: Oh man Okay, so I have to give you two. It's really hard for me to give you one or the other, really. But the coolest one, as far as, like, if I wanted to impress people and tell them, it would be Beastie Boys with Tribe Called Quest opening. No in, way. I think that was 97. Yeah, that's, see, that's oh, the thing. Oh, even are like, and in 97. Went to that show? Oh. Yeah. In 97, that was the, in the round. Me and Jared went. And Wade, like, you didn't go to that, right?
1: No, I didn't. That was when you, Jared so and Jared- Zach, were in your all uh, Beastie Boys phase, where you like performed at the school talent show and shit. What? Oh Correct. my god! That's a whole. The three story. of you did that. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They dressed up in the space suits and everything. <laughs> oh.
2: Inter- Intergalactic's what you did, right? Yep. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
2: you're kidding? No, no joke. No. So, so about that Beastie Boys concert, though. Uh, so Jared and I, like, we bought pretty shitty, shitty tickets. Like, I don't know, They were nosebleed. It's Kemper Arena, which – what do you think that holds, Wade? Like sixteen to 20,000 people?
1: Kemper, yeah, twenty something like that.
2: So you know, we bought the cheap tickets, and um, we're sitting up at the top, and then we see that baseball coach that they had – I mean, you might remember his name. I can't remember his name, but he was like a younger dude, and he was working like as a pit guy or whatever. Like you know, He was working for the venue. So we see him in the floor, and we like get his eye contact. He doesn't know me, but he knows Jared. And so, like, he lets us sneak all the way down to the floor.
0: Hmm.
2: So we sneak down to the floor, and we're like, literally, third row, for beastie up against boys. the railing. Oh, that's for Beastie Boys and Tribe. So Q Tip, cool. and with Tribe, everybody was there. Q Tip was there. It was supposed to be Tribe's last tour. I mean, I know they've said that for twenty years. You know. But anyways, <laughs> um, Q Tip came out with his towel, with that towel wrapped up on his head, like you know, a Q Tip. And so Tribe was awesome. Five Dog was awesome, I and mean, it was great. And then Beastie Boys come out. Well, this this concert was called in the round and if you look on youtube there's um there's live footage of pretty much the entire concert and they're in like ireland or scotland or something and it's pretty much a good rendition of what i saw but anyways they do the whole tour or they do the whole show and then it goes silent kind of like maybe for the encore type set and the whole lights go out in the stadium and like everybody's gone you're like where'd they go and it's like three or four minutes, and all of a sudden the lights come back on, and the Beastie Boys are out there with their sabotage outfits on, and they all have their own instruments, like they're playing their instruments, and the stage breaks free and starts rotating around the entire arena. So it's spinning. Nice. So, yeah, so that kind of blew my mind. And then when Mike D. left the stage, I high-fived him on the way out. Oh!
1: <laughs>
0: yeah.
2: Oh! <laughs> Yes. So that one's hard to top for me, right? Like, that was one of the coolest ones, especially since we paid 20 bucks and got to get all the way down to the floor. That's... But my, my other kind of, like, as far as maybe for the experience of the music, I guess, is I saw Paul Simon, I want to think, yeah, last summer at the Greek in Berkeley, oh, which Lord. I'm going to see Tom Petty there tomorrow night. Oh, wow. Tom Petty, nice. Very nice. Yeah, and so the Greek only holds, like, 7,000 people. Anyways, I saw Paul Simon there, and, like, I'd been drinking and stuff, so I guess I was a little messed up, but uh, I was just crying the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) It was just emotional for me, and, like, he played all the songs I wanted to hear, and he's, like, 74, so, like, I don't think he's going to be touring much, but here's what was kind of interesting about it. So he comes onto the encore, and, you know, I'm the type of guy, I'll look online and see, like, what a normal set list is or what the encore is, because I guess I like to ruin the surprise for myself, but... Anyways, he comes on for the encore, and you know, he usually does like a Simon and Garfunkel song or one of his other big hits. Well, he comes out and sings the first song, and it's like nighttime. And on this venue, it's built into a hill. And if you're sitting like kind of near the top of it, you can see across the bay to San Francisco. So it's Mm. like a really cool setting. And it's like old concrete. It looks like an old Greek, you know, Shakespearean theater. That's awesome. And it's outdoors. And and anyways, uh, he gets out there and he's like, kind of ends his first song, and he gets the crowd's attention. He's like, Um, Sorry to tell you in this way, but Muhammad Ali just died. He was like the greatest. And the crowd, like you can hear this audible like, oh, you know, like people are like sad. And then he goes into the boxer. He starts singing that song. And that's when I just start crying. And I'm not necessarily a huge Muhammad Ali guy, but like it was just like this emotional moment. And actually, if you look on YouTube, you can see that exact thing that I'm talking about. It's on there. But. Huh. So anyway, so that concert had me crying a lot. So I guess <laughs> I guess that stands out.
1: Well, man, speaking of concerts in San Francisco, um, talk to us about the Altamont stuff you and I were talking about off air. So Jared Jared brought on Altamont stuff. And was there one or two things that you wanted to bring up about the the scene there?
2: Well, I mean, you know, obviously, I only know about what I read about it. But the thing about that guy is like... He did have a gun, and he, if you look at the video footage, the guy, the Meredith Hunter, I think his name is, he was. It looked like he was going to shoot McJagger, and so like that Hell's Angel guy that stopped him, like in a way, it probably saved McJagger's life. Huh. So that was something interesting about it, right? Like the Hell's Angels have a bad rap for that, and probably deservedly so. But like you also think about it, you're like, well, and he got acquitted too, right? So that that uh, case went to court, and he got acquitted from any wrongdoing because. I mean, I'm not going to call the guy a hero or anything, but all you got to really do is watch the footage, and you can tell that guy's, like, going to kill somebody. Right. (laughs) And he was real close to the stage. He was probably only, like, 15 feet away from it.
1: Well, if the Hells Angel got acquitted, then, you know, I'm kind (laughs) of – I kind of understand, I guess. So.
2: I mean, the whole thing was still a shit show. Like, everything Jared said about it was correct,
1: but – Oh, I wasn't necessarily meaning to refute it, but you said something about – Something else about the free music scene and how free concerts were kind of started with that. And
2: oh well, I mean, and this is really like I'll give you just maybe a yeah a teaser into if you want to have me back on to talk about Monterey Pop, but Monterey but Pop really that's with what Monterey it was. Pop.
1: Monterey Pop and was Monterey Pop my
2: mind. is is considered the greatest concert ever by I guess people of that era. But Monterey Pop, Monterey always had this uh, Monterey Jazz Festival, and so John Phillips of um, Mamas and the Papas him and Brian Wilson and Paul McCartney almost had like a think tank and came up with this free concert idea and they wanted to show rock and roll as being more of an art form instead of like noise or whatever and they were talking about how rock and roll and jazz are the two American made like they kind of like got cultivated and started in America and how jazz was considered an art form and rock and roll wasn't and so they wanted to use that Monterey um, site to try to launch this free music concert with all the rock and roll acts so it's funny because the Beatles, even though they thought of it, they knew they couldn't do it because at this point they couldn't even play live anymore because people would just scream at their shows. Like all these little girls would scream so loud it wasn't even like a worthwhile concert. <laughs>
0: right.
2: But so Monterey Pop, like they pulled the whole thing off with like six weeks of planning and it was um Jimi Hendrix's like first real announcement to the world out of UK of like American audience. It was the first time Otis Redding really played for a non black audience. It was janice joplin's launching pad simon and garfunkel also played the who played and the who's career would have been over without this concert because there was this big argument about who goes first jimmy or the who and the who did not want to go um after jimmy because they knew jimmy was gonna like burn his guitar and so they had this huge argument and i think they i don't know if they flipped a coin or what happened but jimmy won he went on first and that's the scenes where he lights his guitar on fire and plays the guitar with his teeth and becomes like this huge icon and so shit. the who get on afterwards and they're like god damn it we knew he would do that shit. <laughs> and they get on and that's when they destroyed all their equipment oh that Housen show starts bashing his guitar and people are like what is up with these guys and it's funny the crowd actually didn't think it was cool because they didn't know what they were watching
0: hmm.
2: wow. but it was one of the first times that a concert like that had been documented because like Camcorders had just gone up in technology, and this guy, D. A. Pennybaker, was hired to do the do, do the documentary because the concert was none of the artists got paid, so the, like everything was on limited funds, and so the documentary was supposed to be the way for ABC had the rights for it. But anyways, he had color camcorders, and he let all of his guys just have a separate camcorder to try to record all the action, and because of that, people knew about this. You know what I mean? So that's how it became this iconic deal. Wow. Like the Otis Redding set is amazing. It's it's on TV. It's on YouTube.
1: Word. Nice, dude. You just hit that with us off the cuff. I like that. Thanks, man. I hit I didn't give you any warning of that. You just kinda hit it with us. So we on Have You Heard, you're familiar with our Have You Heard segment, right?
0: Mm-hmm. That's so, right.
1: So we just we just did that and I brought up something that I thought was really cool and I thought that you could uh we could banter back and forth about. So Vanity Fair recently reviewed the list of the hundred greatest comedy movies of all time. Okay? So how about you rattle off your top couple that you can think of and i'll tell you if they were on the list or where they were or something similar
2: okay so i'll i guess i'll give you like i guess five
1: okay i'll take five
2: number one's number one's blazing saddles blazing saddles and You couldn't make that that's you your number make one that movie today that's you
1: definitely could not make that movie today <laughs> <laughs> impossible not gonna well, happen. what's funny
2: is I remember seeing that movie on the Family Channel like you know fifteen years ago, and they really didn't edit anything. And I'm like, "You're playing this on the Family Channel? Don't yeah. waste a horse." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it came that's in. A in hot, that's a $500 uh, pole cart. Yeah, <laughs> that that movie's just amazing. Number 20 on the list. Okay. So Big Lebowski's in my top three. Oh. I mean, that movie. Every time I watch it, I find a new piece of it that I love.
1: Same. That was number 11. Okay.
2: Um. Summer Vacation, which, by the way, Summer Vacation is far better than Chris's Vacation. I don't
1: care what anyone says. I agree 100%, and it's not on the list.
2: Oh, and how many people are on this list?
1: Uh, well, there's 100 movies? movies, and it was reviewed by 250 critics nationwide. And the average age of these critics is probably, you know, our parents' age. So we got to take that into consideration. The number one movie Vacation's was from— Vacation's not on there? Dude, no. Dumb and Dumber wasn't on there either. Uh,
2: Oh man You know what I was I, I was listening to One of your older episodes And you were talking About that stink you smell Going through that paper factory Yes sir
1: Hammered <laughs> shit and I, was,
2: I was The first thing in my head I'm like thinking Of Clark Griswold Being like Roll him up Roll, em up. <laughs> Roll em up
1: Roll em up Roll <laughs> up So give me a couple more a couple more comedies
2: So One that I, Probably only I would Put on the list But is just Comedy gold Is Kingpin oh, I didn't think of that But it's not on there Oh, man. A milked your cow. We don't have a
0: cow. We don't have got a, a cow. <laughs>
2: <laughs> got a bowl, though. He's <laughs> drinking it, and that's great. And then um, I guess, like I'd say, either Caddyshack or Raising Arizona.
1: Well, both of those are on the list. Caddyshack was 65, and Raising Arizona was 32. Uh, I don't. I didn't really give much credence to where they were on the list. I was just happy that a lot of my favorites were actually on it. This is the top top five. I'll just give it to you. Some Like It Hot. Have you ever seen that movie? It's an old movie from No, this...
2: but it's Marilyn Monroe.
1: Okay, yeah. So that's number one. Dr. Strangelove, Annie Hall, Groundhog Day, and Duck Soup are the top five. So
2: I don't even look at Groundhog Day as a real comedy, but I do like that movie a lot.
1: Yeah, so... You it's, know.
2: Cer- it's certified fresh.
1: It's got Zoolander on there at 88. Anchorman at 33. Anchorman's up
2: there, too, really.
1: Anchorman's at 33. So it, it's the, okay. the first one on there, so... Uh, at least the the highest ranked, most recent. But I thought that'd be fun to kind of go through that really quick. Mm. What
0: you got, Malcolm? Yo, Brad, so I heard you're into disc golf. Mm-hmm. You play much? I wanted to know how you like to tee off, because I'm one of those tomahawk throwers, but I need to hear some strategy from you real quick.
2: Uh, well, the funny thing about me is I actually kind of have bad form. Like, Wade can sidearm really far. And the tomahawk is like... Oh, I think he that's kind not of good. No, yeah, Wade can, Wade can sidearm pretty far. The thing about the Tomahawk is it's a little, I mean, I think it's a whole specific throw. Like, it's not something you're really going to do off the tee pad if it's a wide open Same. shot. But yeah, my, my, my run-up is a little happy Gilmore-ish. <laughs> and it's not the way you're supposed to do it. But, like, for me, it's the way I get the most momentum. And, like, I've been playing 10, 12 years, so I can't really change it now. Mm. But, I mean, backhand is the way I throw. So I'm right-handed and I throw backhand style. Hmm. So, but I mean, really, the big thing is grip, right? And they have a have a way you grip it called power grip, where you put all your fingers underneath the disc. And I remember I used to only throw it with two fingers. Once I learned power grip, I added like seventy feet or so to every drive, so that helped quite oh, a bit. But I probably play I probably play three rounds a week. Oh, that much? That often? Well, in California. Really? I mean, it's it's a year round sport out here. Uh,
0: that's true. But do you see the courses everywhere, or is there specific places you have to drive or? is it that common around town
2: so in san jose there's a few courses i don't really like them they have two nine hole courses and one 18 and the 18 is great but i just don't have a lot of friends down here that play it and so it's too easy to lose a disc so I go to Golden Gate Park in San Francisco, which, I mean, it does take me like an hour to drive there. But it's just got such a camaraderie and community built in that, like, you can just go in there and get them, like, $2 pickup games all day. So I usually go up there and play. But, yeah, that takes about an hour. But Santa Cruz, 45 minutes south of me, has got a course called De La Viega that's probably top four in the nation. Whoa. Wow.
1: Remember that 27-hole course? 27-holes. Yeah, I remember that 27-hole course in Lincoln that we played when you guys came up there and visited? Yep, yep. Yeah, thing. I mean, it was on the, like, one or two hits hills that they could find out in nebraska <laughs> and uh it was beautiful but it was really awesome and then when i started getting into actual golf down here when i moved to tennessee I, I started to think back about the way that frisbee golf courses and the holes were laid out and it was very very tricky just like regular golf a lot if of a
2: disc golfer heard you call it actual golf they would not be happy <laughs> oh boy <laughs>
1: no yeah probably not just like a someone that thinks that soccer is actually called football we'd probably get into a big fight oh, no.
2: <laughs> oh well disc golfers don't even like the term froth they're like it's disc golf man
1: yeah disc golf we'll, we'll go with disc golf i that's fine but um i'm yeah. not one
2: of those guys by the way just just
1: letting you know kind of sounded like it with your pretentious attitude
2: i'm <laughs> <laughs> just letting you know Letting you know in case you i don't want to see you get in a fight with just a disc stay golfer. stay in your lane wade mm-hmm it's, Mm-hmm.
1: All right, so I got one for you. So since you are a broker out in California with wine, you know
2: who Tool is, right? Yeah. All right. Perfect Circle, Maynard, that yeah. stuff.
1: Yeah, yeah, Have you ever had
2: his wine? It's, yeah, the Stronghold stuff out of Arizona. Yeah, Caduceus, whatever
1: I think is what it's called. So Caduceus. I've
2: only had it like once or twice, and it, I mean, I thought it was decent wine.
1: Okay, because, you know, I've, but you can't get it ahead. out
2: here. Like, I, I've never
1: been able to find it in Tennessee, so, never got a chance to actually try. I love, big fan. Love the dude. Love the band. But I was curious if you knew, since you live out there.
2: Well, so, I mean, he does make, from what I've heard, I haven't really had much of it, but I've heard that he makes legitimate wine. And a lot of people don't think of Arizona as wine country because, I mean, obviously, California is what we think of, or right. Oregon. But um, New Mexico also, I used to sell a New Mexican sparkling wine called Gruet. And, like, they make really good wine out of there, too. So, just different areas can grow certain things. But um, I know there's a Netflix documentary about. Maynard's wine is called like blood into wine or something mm-hmm. like that which I haven't seen yet but I think it documents his journey that's awesome
1: what's something popular right now Brad that you just can't stand
2: oh man Reese I haven't even seen it in my market but there's apparently this thing called like blue Moscato and it's like Moscato but it's like the color blue <laughs> so I don't even know what's going on with it but it just looks horrible to me it's just like clearish white wine with blue dye in it <laughs> Yeah, I guess. I, I mean, I don't know. I mean, grapes aren't blue, but if you were talking about in general like or not just wine, but just something popular I don't like.
1: Yeah, just something in general and popular. Ah, oh, so here's the deal. American Ninja Warrior
2: oh thank you
1: thank you really you I'm, hate I'm, it let me I'm, tell I'm, you
2: why no yeah. let me let me let me tell you why this is, this is okay. somewhat multifaceted <laughs> Lay it on us. i actually personally love watching guys do the obstacles but the my kid has cancer and my dad's a firefighter <laughs> mm. and five minute intros that i see in the show like i personally i still dvr it because i cannot watch the lead-ins and i guess the, that's fair it was for every Doc contestant. A, I'm a Jibia guy. They're so cheesy. I just hate cheese. I just cannot stand fake cheese. It's like the Christine Lisi girl who does Colin Coward, like, quit smiling. <laughs> All she does is smile. When she talks, she smiles, and I just hate it.
1: I mean, you're right, though. The Japanese version, like, there wasn't none of that stuff. It was just like, here's whoever, and watch him climb this wall, and then fall and yeah, break go a Yeah, go run leg. the course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And it was just back-to-back-to-back-to-back, to back to back to back, like, people. like
0: Yeah, they, they just... do that random cheesiness so you fall in love with the, with the contestant. Mm-hmm. So
2: I, I yeah, get that. Yeah, so I hate that. Okay. That's, the, that's something popular I hate. I okay. guess that's
0: a good reason to hate stuff like America's Got Talent then and whatnot. Oh, they exactly. they, they, they have even talented. more of that. Oh, and, I mean, soft. the
2: thing is, like, I have guilty pleasures. I love reality TV, but, you know, I, I just can't do the cheese factor. So... I like
1: watching America's Got Talent on, like, social media after so people have just so already you can see the talent. Yeah, people have already filtered through the acts that were good, and are like, oh, everybody needs to see this one, and then they'll typically see it on Facebook or Twitter or something, and I can watch just their act and not all the crap leading up to it <laughs> and all the crap after it. Just I get to see this person It's awesome, and that's hmm. how I take in those talent show shows. But it's yeah, it can. Well, that's
2: why DVR is a beautiful thing. It is, yeah,
1: absolutely. Or YouTube. <laughs> all right, Brad. Eighties mm-hmm. or nineties. <sighs>
2: 80s. Why? Oh, the outfits, probably. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, man, I just think I like. I think of the 80s movies. I loved like Fast Times at Went High, like all the John Hughes films. Like that just looks like an era to live in. Yeah, an era to party in for sure. Poker or blackjack? Poker. A poker, I have the edge. You think?
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, for sure. Blackjack. Yeah.
2: I gamble down here in San Jose like there's a poker room It's 24 hours. And here's what's funny about it being a 24-hour poker room. There's these signs on the door that have a time limit. They're like, if you've been here longer than 22 hours in one stretch, you have to leave for four hours. Which I like – when I first went there, I laughed at it. I was like, who the hell is going to be here for like 20 hours straight? It's pretty easy. And then easy. I got myself to like – I got myself to like 15 hours one day and I was like, well, I can kind of see it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty easy if you get locked in, man, especially if you're catching cards. You catch them early and you're yeah. sitting around.
2: Well, and the thing is with poker to actually really win a lot of money, if you're not playing like the you know, uh, acting talking game, if you're just kind of like playing cards, and, like kind of waiting on hands to like be successful. If you play in every hand, I mean, it's going to be tough. So you got to sit there and just wait on hand. Like I go to a place, I go to a place where like a lot of celebrities actually come play, like Helmuth is down there every now and then. And I actually was playing in a round with Richard Seymour, uh, you know, the Patriots. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. Defense event. Like, these guys are in there all the time. Like, all these football players go down there and just lose their stacks. But, anyways, I mean, it's pretty fun. I mean, I've lost a lot and I've won a lot at them, but I feel like I'm not playing the house. I'm playing another person.
1: You got to pick one, Beastie Boys or Tom Petty? Tom Petty.
2: Boo! Hands down. Hands down. I mean, Tom Petty is like the soundtrack to my life.
1: Further. Okay, well, Tom Petty, Billy Joel. Petty. Mmm, I'd pick Petty. No
2: one's beating Petty. I'll just just tell you, no one's beating Petty. Mmm. Well, I just I know Joel's up
1: there too. At least if I remember right about yeah, Billy Joel's up there as well.
2: It, yeah, I'm a pretty big fan of Billy Joel too. But Petty, Petty wins. But it, as a as a band, who would be your favorite band? Oh, well, I mean, it's kind of lame, I guess, to keep saying Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers because I do like them as a band. But I mean, I, I like bands you probably haven't ever really heard of. But there's a band from the '60s was like one of the first um, interracial bands called They're called Love. The Lead singer's name was Arthur Lee. Um, and they were L.A. band in like 63 to 65. They're one of my favorite bands, too. So
1: hey, a band um, called Love. This, this is coming from Zach in Kansas. You ain't ready for Petty. <laughs> oh, ready, set, Petty. You stay ready for Petty. Hey, all right, man. We're going to hit you with this one on the way out the door, okay? You're a wine broker. You're a Northern California guy. Can you kind of mix us a little bit of that, bring us into your world? What is it? I don't know if you can cook very well with it, but knowing what you know about wine and cooking and all that, what would you say is the most popular or best dish up there that involves wine?
2: What do you mean best dish?
1: I don't know. Maybe your favorite food or uh, – I'm sure that wine is used not only in drinking up there. I'm sure it's you know pretty heavy in cooking. Oh, yeah. Cooking they they pair stuff, it so. with everything.
2: Oh, so well, I mean I guess I was going to that... say something – okay. I got you. I mean pretty much pork and Pinot Noir is like a really good pairing. Mm. So – Pinot Noir and anything like out of a pig, like bacon, ham, pork chops, like that tends to be a really good pairing. But my personal favorite is Gruner Veltliner with schnitzel. Oh, really? So those are both, that's an Austrian wine and an Austrian meal. And there's a saying in wine that like what grows together goes together. And so like regionality with wines. So like if you're, if you're eating a regional dish, you probably want to have a regional wine to go with it.
1: Yeah, I've I've heard that, just never really understood it. <laughs> so, but it makes sense. Yeah. Hmm. So pasta dishes, you're gonna want something. Is that what? Is Italian that why? One? Is that why sake tastes so good with sushi?
2: <laughs> Probably so, but <laughs> I'm like, I don't really, I don't really eat sushi. Actually. Oh my god, I get,
1: I can destroy it. I'll close the restaurant. But of let me, down. let me
2: ask you guys this: Are there any like, are there any like wine specific questions you guys want to know?
1: Um, I do. What, what makes like good wine and cheap wine so different that it can go from a ten dollar bottle to like a hundred two hundred dollar bottle
2: other than okay. the age of and, it and yeah and that's actually i mean that's a really good question and I'll, I'll give you the short of it but the thing is when my friends tell me and they're like hey um if i'm just going out to a, a wine shop and i don't know anything about wine like what should i buy i usually tell them don't buy something from america if you're on a budget of like let's say ten dollars a bottle and there's a two-part reason of that and the real reason is is Like, I think if you want value, buy wines from France or Spain, and even though those wines have to get imported and bottled and corked and shipped across the ocean, and you're like, well, man, all those markups, like, how would that be the better value? The truth of the matter is the land price is not really factored into that wine anymore because it's been passed down from generation to generation. Versus California, you come out here and you try to buy – Some acreage and wine country in California. I mean, you're paying through the nose, and that has to be built into your business plan. But when you get to wines, exactly, Uh, I think an acre of California wine-growing grapes is like five hundred thousand an acre, and that's just for the dirt. Wow if you're buying mm. a Napa. But so as far as like wines that are expensive, and wines that aren't, there's one real big definer and it. it's, is it machine harvested or is it hand harvested? So I deal with a lot of boutique wines that like, you know, migrant workers come in and they actually pick the grapes. And so they're looking for quality and they're They're throwing out the bad clusters and they're just picking the good ones versus a machine, right? So if on the way to my uncle's house in Paso Robles, you will be driving down 101. And you'll get to this little spot where it's like a continuous vineyard that probably runs about 15 miles on both sides of the highway. It's just rows of vines the entire way. So a vineyard that big, it's impossible for it to be handpicked. So they have this little tractor machine that'll go through the rows. And it's got these arms that come out on the outside and it shakes the vine trellising and drops the grapes off. And what's kind of interesting about that is it's not that selective, right? It has like a blower that tries to blow out bird's nest and dead leaves but oh. it doesn't catch everything oh. and so what's funny is you'll get critters in the wine right so you'll get sometimes maybe a snake or a rat finds its way into that 10 dollars california wine but what's <laughs> ironic about that is it's actually good for the wine what because because it finds so it's a finding agent so decomposing rat there's an old saying in the wine industry it's called a rat in the vat is, is oh, a good
1: thing. What you're telling me right now is making me very uncomfortable. Absolutely. make me happy <laughs> I don't drink I know. wine.
2: I, I'm pulling the curtain back. This is like hot dog factory. But anyways, it's funny. Like one or two rats in this huge vat of fermentation tank will find all the impurities to it. It's uh, like a lot of people on white wines use egg whites as a fining agent. And it takes all that cloudiness out so you have a clear, finished wine at the end. And a critter or two in the wine, or, in the wine vat will actually do the same thing for you. Hmm. What? That's different.
1: So you're saying the the decomposition of that rat draws impurities to it to clarify your
2: wine more. Correct. Wow. And so when you're talking about wines that are $100 and $200, it's hard to ever justify those, right? Either they have a ton of history, like let's say they're from France and they're storied history. I mean that's one reason, right? And obviously it's a supply and demand thing. But what – like for a California winery that's technically new, to have a $200 bottle of wine – I mean, even though the land's expensive, it's kind of tough to fathom that. But usually certain vineyards have certain soils and they, they get a reputation for being a very unique place, a very special place to grow wine. And so what happens is when they make these wines and the public starts getting them or wine critics start saying how good they are, they'll get a big wine industry has a huge scoring system and it's it's on a hundred point scale. And so if you get like 97 to 99 points from, on, on your wine, people will seek it out and try to buy it. And so, once you make a wine, like a Cabernet or whatever wine that's considered to be worth more money anyways, because red wine's always worth more than white, people go out and they buy that, and then, you know, the winery realizes that they have way more demand than supply and the price just keeps going up. Mm -hmm. So, single vineyard wines, you know, that make a good red wine, that's how they end up getting it to be such a high price. Now, don't get me wrong, they are quality wines, but I personally, as a wine connoisseur, I don't ever really spend over 100 bucks on a bottle.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you said red wines are more expensive. Is that just because they take more time on the vine,
2: so it's a longer process? No, actually, it has nothing to do with that. It's just perceived value. Like, for some reason, people spend a ton of money on red wine because they do have more ageability. But, I mean, I actually prefer white wine. It's not the way it was when I started in the industry, but, you know, your palate changes as you go through time. But, like, red wines just tend to go for a lot more money than white wines. Hmm
1: what was that word that you used earlier that meant like tart, sharp, tannin? Tannic. Tannic. So and tannins
2: come from oak, right? So a lot of um, the wines that are expensive, they go in what we call briques. And it's a barrel like you would, a brique is a barrel. And it's probably like the barrel that you're used to seeing, like that kind of big barrel that they turn into yard art or places. But um, they go into these French oaks and like in France, there's certain villages where the trees grow with a really tight grain. And so they're you know, the sought after barrels to be used for wine production. And those barrels, they're over a thousand bucks too, brand new. And so that's another cost that goes into wine. And they age them in those barrels for anywhere from eight to 24 months. And that's another thing that you're paying for when you're paying for high wine because they had to wait that whole time to get that thing there. But something that's interesting about red wine versus white wine is that all wine is actually white. So when you actually go to pick a grape off of the cluster, even if the skin of it's red, Or if it's a white wine and the skin of it's green When you actually first crush that juice It's all white The only thing that makes a red wine red Is that the skins get included in the fermentation tank And they get contact with all of that white juice And it dyes it red
0: Okay that makes sense Hmm. I was always curious about that one thing right there actually Yeah because to come to think of it Every time I've
1: ever eaten like black grapes They are like a clearish color on the inside Just with a red or blackish purple skin.
2: Yeah, the flesh of the the flesh of the grape is all pretty much the same. You know, it's that that white kind of flesh.
0: So, are you saying with white wine, that's more of the green grapes?
2: Yeah, they're green mm. to yellow. Yeah, and that's what they look like on the cluster when they're about to ripen. Okay, and then the red grapes. Well, they, I mean, they'll look really red, obviously. And you know, the seeds are still in them, and seeds seeds give you a lot of tannin too. So, tannin doesn't just come from oak barrels; it comes from seeds as well. They yeah. put off their own you know part of the tannin process
1: yeah tannins are in lots of plant matter like if tannin is a thing that's in beer making as well that's why you have to control your temperatures because you if you cook your grains at too high of a temperature you'll release too many tannins out of the grain and it causes your beer to like you said have more of a bite and bitterness and dryness to it just like you were Mm -hmm. talking about with the wine so it's very cool that those are correct nice all right brad final one Fantasy football season is upon us. You gamble heavily on fantasy football, yes or no?
2: Well, I'm in one league, and we pay $150 apiece, and the winner gets 1000 so, I don't like having multiple leagues because I don't like rooting against my own team and being like, well, in this league, I'm doing good.
1: So do you do daily? No, I've
2: never done daily.
1: Dude, you got to get into FanDuel this year, first of all, first and foremost. This conversation can't continue without me telling you. You need to create a FanDuel account and get into that. So, secondly, is that better than DraftKings? Uh well, I just prefer I think it's easier. The Kings, the biggest difference, Kings you get to pick uh there is no kicker. You don't play a kicker, you play an extra flex. And on FanDuel okay. FanDuel you pick a kicker. That's literally the only difference. <clears throat> so, it's just a matter of what lineup you fill. But what's your strategy? Like what's your strategy going into the season? How do you draft your team? You've won your championship the last 2 years. What strategy do you pick?
2: Well, so my league, we, we allow six points for passing touchdowns. So quarterbacks usually run off the board quick. So if you have a pick in the top, we're only 10-man league. So if you have a top five pick, you probably got to try to go get a stud that's going to throw 40 touchdowns. But if you miss him, you got to get the first running back. But really, I think the way to win fantasy is to constantly make moves. It's the waiver wire. I. For it's like when, wire, you yeah. see that, when you see that guy get hurt, you go get his backup the second you can.
0: Well, like even taking advantage of those bye weeks, and finding that one mm-hmm. guy who's going to replace him during the week. And
1: you mm-hmm. can afford it. The plug and play.
0: Yeah. Trying to stash
1: somebody for future use. Mm-hmm. But as far but, as... Yeah, I
2: mean, that's that's kind of my strategy, I
1: guess. As far as drafting your quarterback first guy, because I'm a quarterback late. I just You're going to listen to our Van Top episode, and you're going to hear that I'm a late QB method guy. I'm well, I'm late if roster. you
2: can't get a primo player. Like, I got Derek Carr in, like, the fifth round last year.
1: That, yeah, you know, so. that's incredible value. So Yeah. I see. Derek I'm gonna guard him later. Yeah. I see him in the fifth round, I'm taking him too. But that also means that you already have two running backs and two receivers. Or two running backs yeah, I and mean, receiver think, and a end. I think end. you gotta
2: load up on running backs if you can.
1: So he would be hmm. hyper fragility like Hayden. That's what I'm going for. Word. Have yeah, you well, ever, that's the right way to go. Have you ever heard of the, the term zero running back, hyper fragility or um <laughs> late round no. QB? Okay, yeah. People make money writing books on that shit. So, <laughs> Hey, didn't you mention that Brad had, have you heard? Yeah. We love it. We got to do it. We got to do it proper. So hang on.
0: Everybody, have you heard?
2: Okay. So have you heard? I've listened to, I guess I hold the record for most plays in a week, but I know that <laughs> Amazon's a huge topic. Oh, Amazon. So Amazon, Amazon it's, a, it's a buzzword. So anyways, I, I saw something the other day on the news and it was, Talking about this Amazon blimp. So, have you guys heard about this at all? No No clue. No. Okay. So, it's interesting because you were talking about them buying Whole Foods and how how are you going to really necessarily deliver the produce and all the things they're trying to work out. Well, I read about this patent that they just got accepted and they actually filed this patent in 2014, which makes me think that they've been working on the Whole Foods deal probably since then. But so, what Amazon has filed for is a patent to put a, a huge blimp in the sky, like more than one. And it's going to have pretty much a floating factory, a floating, like, delivery space warehouse that hangs below the blimp. And so what it's going to do is it's going to be 45,000 feet above the ground, so it's going to be above air traffic. And if you look outside, you won't even necessarily be able to see it because it'll it'll just be like a small speck in the sky because they're going to be – they're trying to avoid air traffic and everything but be <laughs> all the way up. And it's going to have drones that fly to it, have your product on it, drop it off.
0: <laughs> that's literally that's like, like they'll like
1: do it balls. in certain markets that's like some Skynet yeah. shit right there like that's SkyMod. i am like in shock i'm just sitting, sitting so they're gonna there use like... the
2: most they're gonna use the most popular products they have and they're gonna have like a drone carry maybe five or six and so when people order it on their app these drones will come and they'll just drop it on your doorstep they won't even have to land they'll just blink, wow. drop one off and then they'll have like four or five more of them loaded on their back And then they'll drop those off as, you know, they go. So they'll probably not have a ton of products. They'll just have the top selling ones. Right. And then the other thing that they're going to do is they're thinking about for like festivals or like NFL football games or like places where tons of people amass. Like think about having all the bottled water or whatever it is that you need at like a place like that event. And then they'll come down low for that. Right. So they'll probably be sitting at, I don't know, 200 feet or whatever. And they'll also advertise the event on the outside of the blimp. Of course they will
0: what what a course yeah. what an idea everything
2: everything hey and the blimp, you... if the blimp if, if the blimp runs out of stuff it's going to be air refueled by another air flying thing that's bigger than a drone yeah <laughs> <laughs> so they actually this patent just got approved in january 2017 i don't know why it just it's just in the news now but apparently it's good to go because that's some next level shit right there
0: that's for sure so
1: yeah hey how hey. in any of our past episodes have you heard me make the statement that uh in the future, you're going to be able to buy all of your goods and services from six or seven or eight different companies.
2: Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right to
1: me. You think that that's kind of where Amazon's going?
2: <laughs> yeah, probably so. It's funny. I mean, I think about that with wine, and I feel like there still needs to be kind of a personal touch to it to like explain to people and connect with people on how to sell it. I don't feel like it's an internet sellable product when you go come go to boutique things. But you no, know, but it's an Amazon it's an
1: Amazon sellable product. He'll figure it out. They'll they'll figure it oh, out. Oh yeah, I'm sure. So I'm totally with you though. There's certain things in this world that people still enjoy the personal touch too. that are really really hard for the online market to beat like craft breweries and like for beer, like you can't just order that on Amazon. You got to go down, meet people, go to that local pub, local Feels bar. Feels good to mingle
2: with these laid-back country folk don't it? Harry? <laughs> yeah. See, you know, there needs to be a personal touch. You need you need like somewhat of a guru to kind of like guide you through things. Yeah,
1: it's so. a, it's it's definitely all worth it to actually. Go. I mean, I would be it'd be great to be able, I guess, order on Amazon like all my favorite microbreweries like beers and have them right to my doorstep. But it, first of all, you can't, and second, like that takes all the fun out of it like going to Asheville or something like in North Carolina that's like brewery Graceland for beer I mean that's like that's an event like you get to go to all these cool places and get to sample things straight out of the the tap you know and you can't do that on Amazon
2: well yeah and that that to your point like booze is something especially if it's craft brew or craft wine you want to taste that first before you purchase oh yeah if you can well all right, so let me let me give you my other have you heard and then I'll let you I'll let you wrap up this van ride. Okay, alright. Everybody Rated. have
0: you heard
2: Go. Okay, so Jay and Bay just bought a <laughs> mansion in Bel Air. Have you heard about this? <laughs> no. Jay and Bay. Okay. Jay and Bay? Jay and Bay. Jay and Bay. Okay. Jay Z and Beyonce. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Okay, so they just bought and like, they just paid like Fresh. Million. You, you said
1: sorry, you said Bel Air, like Fresh Prince of Bel Air? Like, yeah, he's the new he's the he's the freshest Prince of Bel Air right sure, now. For sure, for sure.
2: So yeah. they just <laughs> they just closed for eighty eight million dollars on this mansion, and it's funny because I was reading an article that said it was actually it was supposed to be like one hundred thirty five million dollars was supposed to be the price for it, but they closed on it for eighty eight million. They got a deal. It's thirty. Yeah, they <laughs> they did get a deal. Even though it was weird, I saw that they put it in a bid for like one hundred and twenty. So I don't know what happened, but they got it for eighty eight. It's got here. Here's what it has. 30,000 square feet of interior space, oh, my spa and wellness facilities, a garage that can park over 15 cars, bulletproof windows necessary. on all of the outside windows of the house. Yeah, probably four different swimming pools again, an indoor basketball court necessary. Yeah. So, but here's what's interesting. It's not so much that rich people bought a house. It's that they took a mortgage out to do it. So they're actually worth over a billion dollars. It's I think it's like 1.3 is what their combined net worth is. But so they put uh, I don't know a little over 30 million down as their down payment, and they have a 52.8 million dollar mortgage. What? Why? Yeah. What kind of interest I, is well, on that? Yeah, well, I've got the numbers. I have got the numbers. Okay, for you, good. I don't know. Wh- I don't know why they did this, but. So uh, the mortgage payment, right? It's a thirty-year loan. It's four percent interest rate, and their monthly payment is two hundred and fifty-seven, or sorry, two hundred fifty-two thousand and seventy-five dollars. Is the monthly payment?
1: Did you have, what was the term? Did you say the term? Thirty years. Thirty years. Okay, so pretty standard. Okay.
0: These
2: cheap bastards couldn't even do a fifteen-year mortgage. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want that fifteen-year adjustable rate. Oh my God! All right, go ahead. So anyways, here's what's kind of interesting. Here's some breakdown of other numbers about that. So that mortgage payment, right? The, we'll just call it 252000 That's 40% of, from July's census date or whatever. It's 40% of July median sales price for a house in L.A., is uh, 610000 is what a house in L.A. normally goes for. So their mortgage payment is 40% of what a single-family home normally goes for in L.A. Wow. Total mm-hmm.
1: purchase price. Correct. Oh, my God. That's what they pay per month.
2: <laughs> and so if you want to expand that outside of L.A. and go to the United States median home value, the median home value in the United States right now is 200000 So it's 50000 50, more a month than the median home value. They could buy my house in one payment. <laughs> Lavish. I, mean, I don't know why they. I don't even know why they did that. But did I, I mean, you? I imagine there's a reason. Did you
1: try to calculate out what the interest was going to be? Well,
2: it was a four percent interest. No, I
1: didn't. Over thirty years. I mean, think about it. On a house that's worth eighty-eight million dollars, and you normally pay one and a half times the value of your home in interest. So they're going to be paying a hundred. You mean to tell me Jay Z and Beyonce are okay with paying a hundred and sixty million dollars in interest? That just doesn't Well, if you make think sense. about it, though,
2: how much does how much does their money earn on its own sitting in a fund? It probably earns five or six percent.
1: Yeah, I mean, they probably got the loan from one of their friends or a bank that they you know are in on somehow. But that's crazy to me that mm-hmm. they would take out a mortgage. You just don't hear that.
2: A thirty-year one, no less you just don't hear that so
1: brad you've been great Uh, you're you're coming back on the van this i do appreciate you stepping in when we had a uh, last minute readjustment of our schedule so um, you've been very very helpful very devoted listeners so far and dude we're definitely going to keep up with mr brad everett out in california i promise thank you so much well
2: you're welcome right on right on
1: all right man we'll talk to you really soon everybody thank you for listening to who is it on episode 17 of the van we'll catch you on the next one thanks brad thank you